Um, <laughs> I hope you had a great Christmas. Um, I, I hope it was exciting and fulfilling. I know that for me, my Christmas lasted longer than the last week. When you come from families that, <clears throat> that are divorced and you have to go to every grandparent's house, it ends up that you have Christmas over the course of about a week. And <clears throat> the same thing happens everywhere you go. When you have kids, you get way too many toys. I mean, way too many toys. I cannot tell you how many gifts my kids got at my mom's house, at my dad's house, at Sarah's mom's house, Sarah's dad's house, at the Christmas party for the extended family. Seriously, we live in a small apartment, and I have no room for toys. We're to the point where we have to take all of their old toys and put them in a car and drive them to Sarah's mom's house so we can sort through them to give most of them away just so we can bring the new toys in. It's ridiculous. And one of the highlights of my Christmas week, I think, was the conversation I continued to have with Eugene. Eugene's my four-year-old. That, uh, no, the toys that Theo opens are not yours also. He might let you play with them, but those are Theo's toys. And Eugene would say, but he can share with me. Oh, yes, he can share with you, but are, are you going to share your toys with him? No. Well, then he might not want to share with you. My favorite wasn't that co- first time that conversation happened. It was like the sixth time that that conversation happened. But then there was also the, my other favorite moment from the week when I was at my mom's house on Christmas Eve. I opened a present from my mom, and here is an iPad. And I think, this is amazing. I have an iPad, and then I realize, wait, this isn't my iPad. This is our iPad. Me and Sarah's iPad. And the first thing I think is, how do you share an iPad? You can only sync it to one computer. And I thought that Sarah and I had an agreement about whose computer we would sync it to, but when I went to plug in my USB cable to my computer, I realized that that agreement was just in my mind. (laughs) And she says, we can share it. And I said, I don't want to share an iPad, and I realized that my son and I are the same kind of sinners. (laughs) So there you go. And just for the record, I haven't seen the iPad since Christmas Eve. So I guess we know whose that is. (laughs) Anyway, uh, I hope that you had a great Christmas. I hope that you had a great New Year's last night. Apparently it wasn't too great because you're here this morning. Um... (laughs) There are a number of people who must not be, but uh, yeah, all these people who usually sit in the first three rows, they must have had a late night. (laughs) Um, This morning, uh, we're going to be looking at a text in Luke chapter 2, so if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Luke chapter 2. You might think that we're still in the Christmas story, but we're not. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 22, Bibles... If you have an iPad, then go ahead and get that out. (laughs) Yeah. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, 
they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. And now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of, for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and then said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you, Your Word this morning. We thank You. We thank You for the Advent season that we've been through. We thank You for Christmas where we celebrated the appearing of Your Son. And we thank You as we move on from there into the next stage of your story, the next act, the next set of action. Father, I pray that you reveal to us what it is that you have to say to us, that your word would find its place in our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you've been here in previous weeks, you know Pastor Doug went through a, a series um, moving through Advent towards Christmas, and then last Sunday with our Christmas service together, uh, you know that um, Advent is the season where we celebrate the anticipation of the coming of Christ into the manger, of the birth of Christ into the world. We wait eagerly for the appearance of the Son of God to come as was promised to God's people. Advent uh, leads up to that Christmas morning when finally we see the appearance of Jesus in uh, the stable in front of us. And one thing we've said as we've lit our Advent candles is that each week represents some sort of different quality of God's kingdom that Christ brings. Hope and peace and joy and love. These are the things that the promised Jesus brings into our world. They're the things that we've hoped for, the things that we've longed for, the qualities of God's kingdom. And on Christmas, He is born, and we see God's kingdom before us. 
I've been thinking a lot about this in the past week. I've been thinking a lot about Christmas over the last week, and maybe it's just because I've had a lot of Christmases or because I've seen a lot of presents. And I've been thinking about the Son of God who comes into the world who is supposed to bring the kingdom of God into the world. And as every present gets unwrapped and I walk into every living room and I see the tree with a thousand presents under it, as I watch the commercials on TV for sales on December 26th, I wonder, where is that kingdom now? I mean, we've gone through Advent, we've gone through Christmas, and the Son has brought the kingdom, and where is that kingdom now? Where do we go from here? What's next? (laughs) Or do we just go through Christmas and we unwrap our presents and that's it? We just go to the next holiday, New Year's, and then... President's Day, and that's it. If the kingdom of God has come, where is it? Where is the love and the peace and the hope and the joy in the world? Because if the kingdom of God has come in the world, as as I look around the world, I still see a whole lot of the world out there. A whole lot of the world that seems to, that looks like it overcomes God's kingdom. Christmas brings something of a different quality. Advent. Advent is all about this uh, anticipation, and then the Son of God is revealed, and all of a sudden something changes, something is different. He is unleashed upon the world, but sometimes the world doesn't really look all that different once Christ is there. You see, that's not how I would tell the story. That's not how I would write the drama that's unfolding before us. I mean, it would be something about Jesus coming into the world and then making everything right. And then uh, the whole world turning around and worshiping him. Righteousness coming, justice being a reality for us. Hope and peace and joy and love being the norm rather than those things that we celebrate once a year as we come to December 25th. Then we've moved... In this sense, we've moved out of Advent through Christmas, and the name that we have for this in the church is Epiphany. It's a traditional name for it. Epiphany is a word that just means appearing. It means this is the time where we look at what happens once the Son of God has appeared. He wasn't here, and now he is here. And what does the world look like as a result of that? It's a time in the church called Epiphany. We're past the story's glorious beginning. At some point, we realize that Jesus isn't a superhero. He doesn't fly. He doesn't turn green when he gets angry. His body doesn't stop bullets. doesn't even stop nails. We realize that he is an infant. At some point, the story takes a darker turn. And this morning's text, we can see it. It's a story uh, where it takes a darker turn because light has shone upon the world and any time the light is turned on, shadows are cast across the landscape. I've seen this represented very beautifully in a particular work of art. In the Prado Museum in Madrid, Spain, there hangs a work of art. It's by the 16th century artist Hieronymus, Hieronymus Bosch. 
painted in 1510. It's a triptych. This is the outside of it. And as you open it up, you see this scene here. It's probably hard to see from where you are, but the piece is called The Adoration of the Magi, or it's called Epiphany. And what you see is uh, at the center panel, at the bottom, you have um, Mary and the child, Jesus. And he's being visited by the three kings, the three wise men. Think, do we have a detail of that? Yeah, there he is. And you have two kings on the ground in front of him with their crowns in the dirt, paying homage to this infant on his mother's lap. The third king behind, clad in white, waiting to offer his sacrifice to the infant king. In every way, almost, it looks like the nativity scene. You have the baby and the mother. You have a shack that uh, if you pan up, you will see the sheaves of straw protruding through the broken roof. You have others, uh, peasants, trying to climb over the shack, trying to get a look at Jesus. We can forward to that image as well. The next one. You have these who are trying to just get a glimpse of the infant who has come into the world. And if you take a step back to the whole picture once again, go ahead. It really looks like Christmas. It really looks like uh, the nativity. Christ coming into the world. But there's something different going on here. Uh, This painting is called Epiphany. It's not called the nativity. Up in the... uh, on the right-hand panel, you see that there are these wolves. Yeah, go ahead. There are these wolves that, are, uh, that have attacked uh, a person. They're tearing him apart. And up here, there's a, a wolf that is chasing down an, another woman. Kind of random for a scene from God's Word. Uh, you also see in the panel where Joseph sits drying diapers by a fire. The, above the doorway here, if you can see it, there is a toad-headed demon that is watching the landscape and looking at everything that's going on around as the Son of God comes into the, in, into the world. But maybe more, the most ominous is the next image. You have this figure who is in the doorway who's anxiously watching Jesus. He's naked except for this red robe that is draped around him. He's taken off of a crown uh, in order to reveal underneath on his head a crown of thorns. The faces that are behind him are malicious and foreboding. They're violent. They're waiting for their turn with the Son of God. And strangely enough, on his ankle there is an open wound, a sore And it's surrounded by some kind of glass bandage. I don't know exactly who he is, but he seems to me to represent something of the world that waits for Christ as he enters into it. We've gone beyond the lights of of, uh, Christmas. We've gone beyond the angels that have appeared and, and sang the praises of God. And now the Son of God enters into the world and shines a light in the world, and the world must figure out how to deal with the Son of God. And in some way, 
It's going to be malicious. Maybe even worse than this, if you, take a, if you pan out to the entire painting again, in the upper realm of the painting, there's just a whole lot going on that is nothing. The Son of God is born into the world, and it seems like, aside from those images I just showed you, the entire world is completely indifferent to his coming altogether. So whether the world is malicious or whether it's indifferent, we've moved on from the angels that we have heard on high into something new altogether. The bright colors that you expect to be painted with the, the brush of Christ's love in the world are overtaken by these muted earth tones as we're kind of underwhelmed by his reception in the world. The birth story tells of God's love coming into the world, and Epiphany tells the story of how we receive that love in our world and in our hearts. And it makes me ask the question again, where is that kingdom? Where is that love and that hope and that peace and that joy that Christ brings into the world? Where is it? If there are uh, toad-headed demons and uh, wolves lurking, where, is, where do we find that love of Christ in the world, and how does it overcome the world in which it appears? The two characters in our text today, they illustrate how this reception happens in the world, how, this, uh, how, this, how Christ is received into hearts and into uh, the society around us. Simeon and Anna, they exhibit, uh, they demonstrate kind of these mixed emotions of, of God coming into the world. Advent stories are generally a cast of extras. They're one-hit wonders in the Bible. I mean, who do you have? You have the shepherds, you have the angels, you have the livestock, you have Elizabeth and Zechariah. You don't see these people again ever in the history of Scripture. And here you have Simeon and Anna. But it's often the role that the extra plays that is incredibly important. They are a cast of witnesses to the one who is born and the one who has come. And Mary and Joseph and Jesus make their way into the temple and they do so to offer the sacrifice for her ritual cleansing. Six weeks after the birth, she would have to go and offer a, a pigeon and a lamb, or if she was poor, two pigeons, which is what she offers for her purification. And as she's coming out, probably into the outer court with, with Joseph and with Jesus, uh, a man who the Spirit has prompted him to go there and be there at that exact time sees them. He's a righteous man who's full of the Holy Spirit. And God has promised him, you will not die until you see the Savior of the world. He sees him and he recognizes him instantly, a six-week-old baby because that's exactly what you would look for in the Savior of the world. And he takes him up in his arms. Moms, if you had a six-week-old baby, would you be comfortable with anybody just walking up and taking your six-week-old and putting him in your arms? But that's what happens. He takes him and he blesses him. And he blesses God for what he is doing in the world. And then he gives this blessing to Mary say blessing with hesitation. 
Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be uh, revealed. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel, which literally means the comfort of Israel. And he gives this, this prophecy, this saying to Mary, which is not comforting whatsoever. Because what it ultimately means what he ultimately says to her is that you will bury your son. Praise God for everything that he's doing and you will bury your son. It's a hard saying. It's a hard thing for a mother to hear. It's a hard thing to take as a blessing. But what you see here is that the blessing that God gives is given right alongside the pain that will come as a result of it. In Epiphany, the silent night is over. The kingdom has begun. Joy has come into the world, and already the world has rejected it. You look at Anna, who is old. Anna is very old. It says 84 in the text, but actually the best translation of the Greek would be that she's actually 105 years old. She's been a widow for 84 years. And during that time, she has not remarried. She's devoted herself to God. She has lived in the temple. She's devoted herself to prayer and fasting day after day after day after day, presumably waiting for the Son of God to come into the world. And when, she comes, when he comes and she sees him, she recognizes him, and she goes and she tells all who were waiting for the restoration of Israel, But the flip side of that is that there were many more who were not waiting for the restoration of Israel. There were many more who didn't care about the restoration of Israel and couldn't care less about the Son of God coming to the world. And so Christ comes to a prophecy that uh, that he will be the cause of the rise and fall of many in Israel. And he comes to a reception of indifference from many in the city around him. Do you have some confusion here? Is your hope that was built up in Advent a little bit strained? That God would bring in this uh, hope and peace and joy and love into the world and now we're kind of seeing this incredible pain that goes along with it. It's a twinge of, in my mind, a twinge of misunderstanding or even disappointment. It's a dark thread woven into the tapestry of God's story. Because where is the hope and the peace and the joy and the love for Mary? (laughs) Where's the hope and the peace and the joy and the love for Joseph, for Christ? Where is the kingdom of God at this moment at six weeks old when uh, Simeon prophesies that Christ will be the one to die. Can you hear Mary ask where that hope is? (laughs) Where where the love is that overcomes the world? Now jump ahead a few thousand years to our moment of the story, and you'll see these same dark clouds cast shadows over our experience of Christ as well. Light breaks through, uh, but sometimes, to me, it feels a little underwhelming. Christmas comes and Christmas goes, Sometimes the only thing that we notice or we remember is that there were too many toys or I lost the receipt that was given to me for the jeans that were too small or that I didn't get what I want like my own iPad. 
<laughs> somehow, somehow I go through the season of Christmas and I, I miss the power transfer that occurs in my heart between Christ and myself, between Christ and the world. And if one major metric of measuring God's kingdom around us and among us and maybe the major metric is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself, well, sometimes I wonder if his kingdom has overcome me or overcome my world at all. I see it, but then I see myself, and I get disappointed in the hope that Christ has brought Uh, We receive Jesus, he appears, he dwells within us, and he changes our hearts, except when our hearts refuse to be changed. I've mentioned to you before my journey to Christ and my journey with Christ. At 16 years old, uh, with all of these messed up things in my life, Jesus finds me and comes into my heart. Uh, That's the advent of Christ in my life. That moment when that preacher said to me, in all seriousness and sincerity, He said to me, Christ will come into your heart and he will fix your messed up life. And Christ did. I mean, uh, let's be honest. I stopped doing drugs. I uh, stopped vandalizing golf courses. I did those things right away. I mean, those things stopped immediately. I started to have reconciled relationships in my family, especially with my mom. But there were other things that didn't change. I mean, other aspects of my messed up life that, that didn't heal, that there seemed to be no salvation for. If I were to boil it down, the categories I would put those things in are anger, depression, and girls. Because it's always, always girls. I cannot tell you in my life, after, uh, after coming to Christ, how many times anger has overcome and overtaken me in a situation to the point of violence. There were at least two separate occasions uh, when I was a youth intern working with high school students and junior high students when I physically got into a fight with somebody in a public place in front of my youth group. I didn't say that when I interviewed for this job but now you're stuck with me. (laughs) I'm I'm surprised I didn't get thrown out of the church. Um, Anger has always been something that has been inside of me. It's been a a pattern of conflict resolution that was instilled in me as I was a child and has continued to try to work its way through me all through life. Don't worry, I do better now. We can have a disagreement and we'll be okay. (laughs) but that's something that Christ came into my world and I expected it to go away. I still suffer through it. I still struggle with it. Depression is something that I've struggled with since my teen years as well. Major depression. Major bouts with doubt of whether or not God actually loves me. Whether or not he could he could be proud of me, or whether or not he created me in the right way. And not just God, but the people around me. If God can't love me, then how can the people around me love me? How can my wife love me? How can my kids? 
And these doubts creep into my mind, and, you know, I was like, God, I wanted you to fix my messed up life, and it's still messed up. Where is the kingdom of God that he brings into the world? Where is the hope and peace and joy and love that he promises us in the person of his son? I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not depressed all the time. Those thoughts come in. And now they come in and generally they go out. But uh, we expect we, that we know how this story is going to go. We expect that we know how the story is going to be written and we especially expect we know how the story is going to end. But God doesn't write the story the way that we would write it. Have you experienced that? Did Jesus appearing in you and still a lot of love directed somewhere else besides him? And it's not, just, uh, in our, it's not just in us, it's in our world. Look around. Jesus comes and it seems that our world is less like the magi who adore him and more like the neighborhood that ignores him. Like he's the guy with the Bible that goes around your neighborhood and knocks on doors. You say, I just want to tell you a little bit about me. People just slam the door in his face. Where is the kingdom that overcomes this world. The truth is, if the kingdom had overcome this world, I know exactly what would happen. I would have no stack of coupons in my mailbox this much every week. My sons would call me dad instead of Casey. And I would have my own iPad. If the kingdom of God was here, that's what would be happening. But that's how we treat Jesus, isn't it? That's how it often feels. We know uh, that Christ should come, that he should overcome, that he should sort out the world. And we treat Jesus and we treat his kingdom like Christmas. Christ as Santa who brings us what we want. We think that we know exactly what he's going to do in our lives. We know what the kingdom looks like. We know how the kingdom ends. And then we experience something contrary, something that's off of our plan and it throws us for a loop and we think that that hope and that peace and that joy and that love has been put into jeopardy because we didn't see that in the story that we wrote i wonder if in her astonishment mary felt that way about burying her son this isn't what i signed up for (laughs) this isn't the story that i imagined when the angel visited me I mean, you said, peace, you are blessed among all women. You didn't say I'd have to bury my son. His light comes, and suddenly we feel like we know how to navigate all of the shadows around us. We know how the world should be. But the truth is, in God's kingdom, how things should be is not really up to us. And it feels this way because we think we know how the story plays out. And we focus our view on the conclusion rather than on the path by which Christ leads us. We focus on the destination that we have in our minds rather than the journey that plays out right before us. We said that Christmas talks about how love comes into the world and Epiphany talks about how our hearts receive it. And how our hearts receive it has everything to do with the path that God lays out in front of us right now. Look back, at, uh, look back at Simeon and Anna. 
I mean, both of them are old. Both of them are probably a little bit crazy. I mean, Simeon's sitting here going, God promised me that I would not die before I see God's son in the world. Both of them are crazy patient. They just wait. Simeon waits for the son of God to come, and then he waits for his death. It's like line waiting is a profession for them. They just wait. They're patient. And um, when Christ comes, they have praise, and they have joy, and they have proclamation. Not because Christ has come and replaced everything around them. Not because Christ has come and has consoled Israel immediately, and everything is put to rights. Not because Jerusalem is restored right that moment. Not because uh, now he can finally live. Because now he can finally die. They give praise to God, not instead of, not that Christ comes instead of what's in the world, but because Christ comes into the world. Christ comes in the midst of the world, in the midst of all of the junk and the garbage that is happening around them. Christ comes, and yeah, he will have to be buried, but Christ comes. And the thing that is different here for Simeon and Anna is not their circumstances. It's not the fact that they are old and waiting to die and have been a widow for 84 years and are 105 years old and living in a temple. Their circumstances have not changed whatsoever. What has changed is that Christ is here. And that is how they receive him in their hearts. Not instead of the world around them, but in the midst of the world that's around them. Because Christ is here, nothing else matters. The hope and the peace and the joy and the love that Christ brings, not dependent upon the circumstances around, only, solely, only dependent upon the Christ who has come. And we can receive him that way. Well, we can receive him uh, according to our own version of the story and be upset about pain and disappointment. Or we could receive him as he is in the world, in the midst of the world, in the challenges of the world, in the pain of the world, in the injustice of the world. And we can love him and trust him that he is going to bring about the kingdom in its fullness. Two stories separate out of this text. One is the story that's always been. It's been, uh, the world's been acting it out since Adam bit the fruit. It's a story of sin and darkness and estrangement from God. And that story doesn't end. That story continues on and keeps going. But there's a new story that comes up, and it comes up from underneath that old story. It emerges under and through the story that is already continually playing out in our world. And it slowly but surely engulfs and overcomes the first It's a story of light and life and hope and peace and joy and love that comes into the middle of the darkness. And the darkness cannot overcome it. And Advent is not the end of that story. Christmas is not the end of that story. 
It's only the beginning. Because Christ is doing something completely new. His, uh, his reception, what we do with Him in the world, that's what overcomes the world. And that drama does not get directed as I would write it. I mean, we still go through pain and resurrection, or rejection and suffering and death. But without those things, you could never have the resurrection. You could never have the overcoming of death through death. Overcoming of the world by love. And in that journey, all is overcome. In the journey with Christ, all is overcome. Scripture testifies to this. 1 John chapter 5, John says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? As we receive Him into our hearts and into our lives, we overcome the world with Him. And again, in uh, Revelation chapter 21, we're given this vision of the new kingdom that Christ brings. John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Christ enters into the midst of our world, and he, his light grows and his story grows, and we follow along with him, and we receive him. And he takes us to this place where God dwells with us, and every tear is wiped away, and he's never separated from us. That reception leads to a new kind of hope. The truth is, and Epiphany, I think, teaches us this nothing is made perfect right away. And maybe that's why Christmas happens every year, because every single year we need to be reminded that Christ comes into the world and his coming cannot be overcome by anything else. He overcomes and the world lingers, but his appearing is only half of the story. It may just be that the larger side of the story is not so much its inception, but the journey that he calls us to. He calls us to a systematic cleansing of all of our sinful practices, a reversal of our long-time priorities. He calls us to go from selfishness into sharing, which is why I'm not going to look for that iPad. <laughs> he calls us to the reception of hope and peace and joy and love, and then for their growth within us toward maturity and giving those things to the world. As we have hope in Christ, we give that hopefulness to the world. As we have peace in Christ, we become peacemakers in our relationships and in the world around us. As we experience His joy, we sing songs of joyfulness to the world around us of His coming and His living with us and in us. As we experience the true love that Christ brings to us, our hearts are filled with that love, and it overflows to those who are around us. Does it matter whether all of this is immediate or all of this is totally complete right in this moment? 
Not really. Because Jesus is here. He has come. And all of it has begun. He moves our lives towards worship and adoration. And the story does not end at Advent, but it begins. And it leads to a discipleship. Where is the kingdom that overcomes? It's within you. As he appears in your heart and leads you on a journey to manifest hope and peace and joy and love to your world. Christ's kingdom overcomes within and without as we journey with him. So now what? Christmas is over. This is probably the only Sunday we'll talk about Epiphany. Might be the only church in the area where you'll talk about Epiphany. Nobody likes that word anymore. <laughs> but it's disappearing. We've gone to Epiphany. What about beyond? What about next week and the week after and the week after that? Where is the kingdom going to be found? For Anna and Simeon, Jesus had become their vocation. They had waited and they had proclaimed and everything they did was about him. And for us, this journey is our vocation as well. It's our life. Today's New Year's Day. Some of you, I don't know how many of you, have probably made resolutions um, that you'll break in two weeks, before two weeks. But we stand on the edge of a new year. And the reality, the reality that you view, the reality that you feel within your heart, it will become your reality as you step out in this new year and you live your life with Christ. And my challenge to you is to have a commitment to per pursue these Advent ideals, not just because they're Advent, but beyond Advent, to pursue these ideals of hope and peace and love and joy, to manifest them in God's kingdom and within yourself and to those around you and in your world. Ask yourself the question, where does your hope lie in yourself and in your world? Where does peace need bringing? Where does joy need singing? Where does love need showing? And as you step out into this new year, journey with Christ and see how his kingdom overcomes you and overcomes your world. Love and peace and joy and hope, those are the ingredients to your journey through the world this year with Christ. Take those in your heart and make them a reality in your world and see where his kingdom overcomes. See where you see it, where you live it, where it lives in you. Because Christ's kingdom overcomes within and without as we journey with him. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we, uh, we've come through this journey through Advent into Christmas, and now we come out on the other side. And Father, we pray that you would continue within us the eager expectation and anticipation to see 
not just your son manifest in the world, but to see the kingdom that he has brought manifest within our hearts. And then for us to bring that to the world around us. Father, enroll us in this mission that you have, in this journey that you've set out before us. And I pray, Father, that, uh, that we sit in eager anticipation of what you will do in this coming year. Father, change us and enable us to change the world around us. In Christ's name, amen.